Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Urgent Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on New Year's Eve 2021. This unplanned broadcast is live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. We apologize for the lack of simultaneous access to ASL. We will upload the ASL version as soon as possible post this urgent messaging. We recognize the importance of informing all Albertans about the state of COVID-19 in our province, and we will endeavor to have the information accessible as soon as possible. Since we began these briefings, we have promised Albertans a regular panel of doctors and experts who endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta. And that is why we are here today. Today's briefing will aim to be 30 minutes in length to assist Albertans in making safe and informed decisions for themselves and their families. Thanks everybody for joining us. Happy New Year's. (laughs) Whether that be your house coat or dress to the nines, I really do hope that each and every one of us can find a little bit of joy today. For me, I know that definitely didn't come out of any of our government officials over the last couple of days. Yesterday, the province was reporting 17,396 active cases for December 29th. Well, today, Dr. Hinshaw said it was likely six times that amount, which would mean over 100,000 active cases. She said, cancel your New Year's Eve plans while simultaneously saying only 10 adults indoors at a private home and one of them will probably have COVID. She asked folks to spend time outside tomorrow while still accommodating events of a thousand people inside halls and event centers, all in essentially the same breath. We've learned a lot in 2021, but apparently our policymakers have chosen not to use that learning to keep people safe. Instead, once again, they have chosen the opposite. At least that's how I felt. But fatalism will get us nowhere. Transparency and action will allow 2022 to actually be a new year. A new year where we can make better choices, where we can force, demand, encourage policy that will save us, our tiny humans, our neighbors from so much destruction, death, and disability. With me today, I have Dr. Wing Lee, Dr. Kate Bisbee, Dr. Joe Vipond, Dr. Goja Gasparovich, and Gil McGowan from the Alberta Federation of Labor. We're gonna start things off with Dr. Gasparovich and then have a chance to speak with everybody else on our panel, as well as take questions from the media and folks at home. Thank you so very much for celebrating New Year's Eve with me and everybody at home. I really wish that last week's broadcast had been the last one of 2021. But if I had to do it with anyone, I'm so thrilled that it is all of you. 
I'm going to pull everybody back into the background for a moment, and I am going to turn things over to Dr. Gasparovic. Thank you, Michelle. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy New Year's Eve. Um, okay, so I start with the slide with like overlap of our real cases, reported cases or non-reported cases with uh, the forecast I did earlier in December, December 12th, 15th. And basically, so those cases are, some are reported by Alberta Health and some are from the trusted sources of trusted sources from Twitter. Uh, and we see that they grow as fast as it was expected. Um, yeah, but this wave can be banned. We can do stuff to bend the Omicron wave. Uh, not everything is lost yet. And I would like to talk, so Omicron, there, there are reports that Omicron can indeed be milder than Delta, but with such high number of cases, it's not good. We will still have the hospitals overwhelmed because large number even of a milder for individual disease results in many, many people sick and many, many people needing hospitalization, hospitalizations and many people who will die. Next slide, please. So that's the projection uh, model done by Dean Carlin from, uh, from BC Modeling Group. And on the lower panel, we see that even if Omicron would be 70% milder than Delta, we can see at the end of, um, at the, end of the next week, we can see overwhelmed, overwhelmed ICU, ICU beds. So milder doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. Next slide, please. And that's what we, what scared me. So of course, Omicron scares me, but also what scares me are the narratives that like basically pave the path for Omicron to spread. So they are very incorrect. One of them is fatalism. And one of them is this, that Omicron is mild, therefore there is nothing to worry about. And as I've seen, showed on the previous slide, the fact that Omicron is milder on individual level doesn't mean that it's not dangerous on the on the population level. Additionally to this, it seems that it's that kids are more susceptible to Omicron than they were to previous variants. So they are it is more virulent for kids than previous variant, which is really bad. And the other one is fatalism that we are all gonna get it. It's everywhere. Therefore, there is no point in doing anything. And I will show on the next slide that it's incorrect. So what we've seen in South Africa, in South Africa, the wave, the Omicron wave actually bent. And there are different explanation hypotheses why it happened. So one of them is that actually on December 9th, there was a Christmas school break. It started in, in South Africa. It will end on uh, January 12th. And on December 17th, that peak of in Omicron wave was observable. Also, what happened in Gauteng is that there is actually an exodus of people from Gauteng. People for Christmas are going to their uh, home provinces. So basically what we what, what is happening there that people behave differently. Schools are closed and people go for holidays off work. So it's like our summer holidays in some way. So modification of behavior can bend the wave. Also, what there was, there's another explanation, it's the networks. So we are not a homogeneous network of connections. So not everybody is connected equally to everybody else. We are living in network of networks. So 
if the connections between networks are broken, then it won't spread everywhere. It's mathematically impossible. Like we can really prevent it unless we are pushed to merge these networks by, by opening the in-person schools. Actually, in-person schools act as connector between different households and connector between networks. So we can prevent spreading it to everybody, but we need a good policy. So we need really to resist getting infected and we need to resist being used as a vector for the transmission. Uh, next slide, please. And that's the one thing about schools. Um, so the green line are, so th this shows the case COVID-19 cases per capita, so per 100,000 population. The bright green line is elementary school children. We see that when schools were open in early September, they've been driving the spread and always like the highest number of infected people per capita per population was in this age group. With Omicron, it's changed. Now it's mostly in the 20 to 29, the blue line uh, group of people. So it didn't spread yet to all the kids and we can prevent it. And we have a duty to protect kids, especially that Omicron is worse for kids than previous, previous variants. The hospitalization of kids is growing everywhere in the world when Omicron wave hit and they are not protected that well by vaccines. So we need at least three doses to be 70 something percent protected from Omicron. Kids have the, the one the, the kids that are in elementary schools have at the best one dose now. So they are really unshielded from it. And we as adults really have that really have a duty to protect to protect them because they cannot protect themselves. Um, yeah, thank you. That's that's all. Thank you very much, Dr. Gasparovic. I'm going to bring everybody into our conversation now. We have a number of questions from folks at home, as well as a few questions from the media. Before we dive into them, would anyone else like to share their initial thoughts and reactions on what has unfolded since our last urgent briefing, particularly the measures that were put in place yesterday and the lack of measures that were put in place today, some of which even included the scaling back of isolation requirements? Yeah, you may, if it's okay, maybe I'll start with a discussion of the changes in the isolation requirements because that has huge implications for uh, workers in this province. In fact, um, you know, they're in the crosshairs, working people. Um, so for those who have not heard, uh, uh, Hinshaw and uh, Health Minister Jason Copping uh, had a press conference this morning at 1030. Uh, interestingly, Premier Kenny was not there. Um, and we can speculate on the reasons for that. But it was a significant press conference, uh, partly for what wasn't said. I mean, other jurisdictions are uh, announcing new restrictions and new measures to keep their citizens safe. Uh, but as Michelle said, uh, our government seems to be moving in the opposite direction. Instead of uh, ramping up uh, protections, they are loosening and weakening them. And so in particular, um, what was announced this morning uh, at that press conference at 10.30 is that Alberta We'll be joining several other jurisdictions uh, across North America, including um, uh, Ontario and Saskatchewan, in uh, uh, moving from a 10-day uh, mandatory isolation period to a five-day period. 
And, you know, as the president of Alberta's largest uh, worker advocacy group, uh, I, I wasn't surprised, uh, but I do still think it's outrageous. Basically, this decision to move from 10 to 5 days of mandatory isolation for uh, people who test COVID positive uh, is reckless, it's irresponsible, and it's uh, bound to backfire. And, you know, I say that it's reckless because uh, it's a, it's essentially sending uh, sick and symptomatic people back to work. Um, it's uh, it's reckless um, because it ignores the science. And I, I want to make it clear. I think everyone, in fact, the government acknowledged as much. This is not a public health decision. It's a business decision and a bad one. Um, so uh, you know, basically, all the science that we've seen suggests that people uh, do not clear. Um, the, the the virus, uh, you know, it, uh, any and anything more than five days, um, you know, as, you know, as with a lot of political spin, there was a kernel of truth, and it is true that the science is suggesting that people who are double vaccinated do clear the virus more quickly than those who are unvaccinated, um, but that, that still doesn't justify moving from ten to five days of isolation. In fact. Um, you know, reading the summaries that are provided in prestigious medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, published something just a day ago. Uh, even the CDC, uh, which, you know, uh, was the first uh, organization in North America to move from a 10 to five day um, isolation period, their own evidence shows that at five days, uh, as many as 40% of people who are COVID positive and double vaxxed and, and have breakthrough uh, infections, as many as 40% of them are still infectious. So that's a minority, but it's still a very significant minority. So, so you know, it's th this is reckless because they're sending infectious people back to work. It's uh, irresponsible because it's ignoring the science and it's bound to fail uh, because if the goal is to keep things open, um, and uh, support our economy, it will have the opposite effect. Because when you send uh, workers who are sick back into their workplaces, uh, that's not without consequence. They will infect their coworkers, they will infect uh, their customers and their clients, and that will have the effect of, uh, of, of hurting the economy because the pandemic will be lengthened, not shortened. So, um, you know, so on behalf of our Federation of Labor, we're now formally demanding that the government uh, provide the evidence, release the evidence that was used to make this reckless decision. Uh, not two months from now, as was the case with the so-called evidence that they promised to provide to justify um, the so-called open for summer order over the summer. Uh, we have to wait a long time to get uh, very thin evidence. Uh, we're not going to wait that long. We demand, uh, you know, if, if, we're, if we're sending workers into the lion's den, they deserve to have the information uh, used to make that decision now, not later. Um, the final thing I'll say is that, um, you know, while other jurisdictions have made similar step, that taken similar steps, uh, I'm afraid that the situation here in Alberta is even worse uh, because uh, as part of their announcement today, they also introduced what I would describe as a loophole for employers to get around even the inadequate five-day requirement. Uh, specifically, uh, Dr. Hinshaw said that, um, that uh, they will allow employers uh, who provide essential services to uh, call workers back who are sick and symptomatic even before the end of the five-day uh, isolation period. So not only will they be bringing them back um, 
yeah, and and you know, like a lot, and the reporters quite rightly asked, "Is this just healthcare?" And she made it clear it's not. Uh, and uh, as far as we can tell, there's not even a list of employers or occupations where these new uh, this new loophole will apply. They're leaving it up to the discretion of an uh, of employers. And in, in a previous um, uh, waves, we, we saw what happens when you leave it up to the discretion of employers. Everyone will declare that their work is essential. Um, and so, what I'm afraid of that is, is that. Uh, you know, in, in many, many workplaces, uh, not only will we have a reduced uh, isolation period to keep people safe, uh, we effectively will have no isolation period at all. And uh, so, you know, workers are going to pay for that as they have in previous, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, in previous waves of this pandemic, they're going to pay with their health and in some case with their lives, but the public is going to pay too, because instead of uh, you know, um, keeping our economy going and keep by keeping things open. Uh, this is just going to make the pandemic worse and it's going to make it last longer. And uh, so it's going to completely backfire. Um, but um, I guess it, it goes to, you know, what Dr. Gasparovich was says this, you know, the sense of, of fatalism, you know, um, and we heard it from uh, uh, Dr. Hinshaw today. She basically said that um, uh, everyone's going to get it. And so, so what we have on our hands is a government that has entirely surrendered. And, um, you know, that more than anything uh, just leaves me feeling despair um, as we enter the new year. On that note, um, open to anyone, Dr. Vipon, Dr. Bisbee. Um, what is wrong with that argument? I know we've talked about it before on this show, but if we let the entire population get COVID, what happens? You're muted, Dr. Vipond. I, I have kind of a statement to follow up and I wanna address what, uh, what your question is in that. If Perfect. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think this has been nailed by, by both of our speakers so far, this idea that everyone's gonna get it. Um, and, and coupled with that is that that uh, COVID is is mild, and this this version of COVID is milder. And in a lot of ways, these two narratives have allowed this government to return to July 27th. I don't know if any of our other panelists feel that way. Of this, um, we're being abandoned by our government, and and this 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 is. We're going to let it run through. It's this letter rip mentality and come what may. We'll just we'll just have to hope. Hope for the best, I think, is the, the general um, feeling. And hope for the best hasn't really worked out so well for us to this point. Um, and, and I want to point out some of the reasons why hope for the best is, is not a good idea. I would say that this group of people in Protect Our Province, Alberta, if, if there's one thing that kind of there's two things, let's say two things that we, we really collect around. One is that we care about each other and we have this feeling that as a society, we can support each other through the times. And that in fact, there's a role for governments to help us through the tough times. And I think that's a bit dichotomous with what, what we're hearing from our government. But the other thing I think that we are rallied around is something called the precautionary principle. And that is if you don't really understand everything that's happening, you try and pick the path that's going to 
hopefully result in the least amount of damage. Um, maybe we'll overshoot a bit. Maybe we'll do things a little bit too too much, but that's okay because the alternative, the the path of of doing too little is is too horrific for us to contemplate. So so let's talk about um, this this COVID is mild thing. I think the first thing that we need to know is that in this acute phase of illness, there will be hospitalizations and deaths. And people have rightly pointed out that even if it's milder, if it's rampant in society, it's still gonna overwhelm our healthcare system. But the reality is that we don't really know what the outcomes, even in the acute phase are, because no developed vaccinated country has gone through this cycle yet. So. Denmark and the United Kingdom are the two countries that are kind of preceding us and are giving us a bit of a window into our future. And neither of them have peaked their hospitalizations, intensive care visits and deaths. So until we actually see that full cycle through um, that wave of not just cases, but ICU admissions and uh, in particular deaths, go through, we don't know really what the implications of this virus is because this is new to us. We're learning every day. And so um, we're, we're working through some of these public health ideas based on incomplete information. And we're not going to have that complete knowledge of what COVID does to a relatively fully vaccinated population. Um, in a developed country until we go through this. There's very, there's a lot of differences between us and South Africa. Primarily, I think there's two that we need to acknowledge. That is that it's COVID Delta uh, basically infected almost everybody in that country. And so they were a, a, a pretty immunologically um, robust population going in. But also I, I, I'm, and I'm going on memory and I could get this wrong, but I believe that their average age is 22. And ours is somewhere in the you know 35 to 45 range as a population. So our demographics are radically different. The other thing that we always neglect is long COVID. What is long COVID? Long COVID is a, dis a disability that results from having the COVID infection. We think that it's about 30% of previous variants and in adults and maybe they say anywhere from two to 30 percent in kids but i my sense is it's around 10 percent of kids and this isn't solely based on the severity people with mild covid can go on to have this long-term disability which can involve exercise intolerance fatigue um something they call brain fog which i would just say is like a cognitive disability and inability to think well um and um and, and so until uh, we don't have any inf zero information on long COVID in, in, in Omicron, specifically because it's a long-term disability. We've only been at this since, what, six weeks now? And that's when you start to find out whether you have long COVID, right? Because you have to have symptoms lasting for beyond six weeks. I know of zero data on this. So the question, I'm, I'm just going to bring it back to, to, to why. And, and I know it's, they always, that the lawyers tell me it's, you can't impugn motivations, but I think it's worth speculating what's going on in the heads of the people in power. In 
July, I really think it was hope for the best. Just hope for the best. Let's keep our economy going. And let's focus on the economy, not focus on the citizens. And that failed. And they added another motivation there. And that's keep the healthcare system afloat. So if nothing else, we can just keep keep things alive and so that we don't have to triage death and people people will die and people will get sick and that's okay because that's that's what happens in a pandemic i think those of us who've been arguing for stronger public health measures have had a motivation that hasn't been shared by this government and that motivation is let's see how few people we can have get sick let's see how few deaths that we can have and i understand that there's balance but not everything that we're arguing for is like the worst thing in the world like wearing a mask is really not the worst thing in the world so so i'm just going to come full circle and just talk about this idea that everyone is going to get it because of long COVID, i'm i'm pretty safe i think i'm going to get through this if i were to get COVID, i'd probably survive it um i have one long-term healthcare issue. I, I, I would be, if I were parish, I'd be one of those with a comorbidity for sure. But I think I'd probably get through it. I have three, three vaccines. Um, but, but I, because of long COVID, I have no interest in getting, um, COVID. Uh, and, and, and I think we can still get through this without getting, without everybody getting it. And I think that is, Basically, because we are finally, well, I wouldn't even say finally, we've known for a long time that this is an airborne disease, and we know how to stop an airborne disease. We know that physics works. If the virus cannot be inhaled and hit your mucous membranes, then it cannot infect you. So how do you do that? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is you don't go hang around with a bunch of people you're not hanging around with because because of asymptomatic spread, you don't know anybody around you who, who, who is safe. Um, we know that the rapid tests in Omicron don't reliably predict illness. Um, and so you can't rely on those. Um, and then there's simple measures like ventilation, filtration, you know, getting a HEPA filter in your, in your house, uh, in your school, uh, make sure all those classrooms are, are examined. And then I'm just going to talk about masks for two seconds before turning it back over to everybody. Um, so I keep hearing Dr. Hinshaw talk about a well-fitting medical mask. Okay. This is a medical mask. It is, uh, fresh out of the package. It hasn't been, been, um, uh, altered in any way. I'm just going to put it on. And this mask is, cannot be made well-fitting. When I'm breathing, air is coming in and out the sides, even with my, my, my pushed down here, it's coming in and out the, the top. And that's because it's not designed to have all the air go through it. It's designed to keep blood from splashing into my mouth because if I'm a surgeon and it's, it's designed to keep me from spitting into patients, it's designed that way. When we talk about a respirator, they're designed to keep all the air from going on the sides and going through the paper. That's what it's designed for, going in and out through the paper. It can't go through the sides because there are no sides. There's no holes here. And I challenge Dr. Hinshaw and I challenge those physicians who call this a well-fitting medical mask 
to go do a fit test. Go do a respirology fit test to see if you can pass a fit test with one of these. Um, and if you happen to be a vapor, I challenge you to vape and see if any of the smoke comes out the sides. Um, these are not designed and these should not be given to children as a respiratory protectant. We need respirators to protect ourselves and our children. So my final thing is, if you want to, in July, when we were faced with this, we took to the streets and we had it reversed. We do not have that option now. We don't have that option partly because it's minus 30, but partly because Omicron is so incredibly transmissible that we can't even feel safe if we're outside. And finally, we can't do it because there are thousands and thousands of cases in our cities. And so therefore, it's just not safe. So how can we rebel against this policy? I'm going to say we rebel by being safe. You want to show it to them? You show them that you don't get infected. You protect yourself, you protect your loved ones, and you show them that it's not true that everyone's going to be infected. Some of you will fail because nothing's 100%, right? We're just trying to improve the chances that we don't get Omicron. But still, I feel empowered by doing everything I can to keep me and my loved ones safe. And I hope you will join me. Back to you, Michelle. Dr. Bixby, do you have anything that you would like to add on the conversation so far before we move over to Dr. Lee to talk a little bit about what's happening with schools and the delay in return to class? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, Gil stole my thunder, but I'm very happy that he did. Uh, the reason I felt it was important to speak today is because I have huge concerns about the safety of Alberta's workers. Um, people who have to present to AHS clinics for healthcare uh, with the decision around this five-day isolation change. Um, as Gil said, there is no scientific evidence that I've seen at this point. I believe the CDC hasn't even released anything to justify this, this shift. So in the context of not knowing uh, the mortality and morbidity around Omicron, and in the context of not having evidence for this five-day change, I'm flabbergasted by the bet that our government is taking with our lives. Um, it's just, I just, honestly, it's absurd. Um, I don't know what I am supposed to say to my patients to convince them it's safe to go to an AHS clinic in the next month if it's possible that the doctor or nurse they see there is six days post-infection and potentially infectious. Um, I don't know how workers can be expected to go to unsafe workplaces where they could be um, contracting COVID, not even having access to a PCR to document that they had it so that if they have ongoing disability or need EI, they don't even qualify for it. They're making a massive bet with all of our well-beings 
And not only is that wrong, in my opinion, they're also doing nothing to mitigate it. If you want to make that bet, fine. If that's the bet our society is okay with, fine. But you could do things to mitigate it. You could mandate N95s. You could make sure rapid tests are available to everyone. You should be working with the federal government and industry to change policies around um, EI, disability insurance, so that people can get the coverage they will need when they have long-term COVID. Um, you could be mandating essential workers come back with PCR tests showing they're negative if it's only been five days. You could choose seven days. There's so, there's so much that could be being done to be mitigated, this massive bet we're taking right now that is not being done. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I, I, feel angry right now. I may be coming across as angry and I am very angry. This is hugely unsafe. Um, I just, I don't, I, yeah. Uh, I encourage people to write your MLAs, um, write the federal government asking for these changes, email Dr. Yu at AHS and ask her how you're supposed to be safe if you have to go to a merger hospital. Um, ask for N95s, wear N95s, make the the best decisions you can to keep you and yours safe because I don't believe this government is doing that right now. Thank you very much for your open reflections um, and sharing with everybody at home your feelings and understandable concerns, anger, frustrations. We've sometimes used the term sangry. Um, support and advocation of the folks that you care for on a daily basis. Dr. Lee, we've had some big changes to school pretty last minute for parents who were planning for next week, but changes nonetheless. Um, for anybody who missed it or anyone who um, just would like some of that information shared without the lens of this current government. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so last night at about supper time, the education minister uh, came on um, short notice and proclaimed that schools would be delayed uh, for return to in-person uh, at least one week. Uh, so return date is now January 10th. And there were school divisions in the province that were scheduled to start back on the third, Edmonton Public being one of them. Uh, some some school divisions had had the later return date, but what I wanted to come on here and say is that while they say that de the delay is to have school boards make their plans um, and, and buy more time, one thing that today's announcement sort of uh, contradicted, uh, if they are trying to buy time to wait for it to be safer, then why are they removing restrictions in, in the way that they're letting infected people spread earlier out of their isolation phase? People are still gathering in large arenas. All of these things that school closure was waiting um, you know, to to have a safer uh, community transmission rate to, you know, re-enter back into schools. None of those things are happening. So while yes, it's true, um, sometimes school closures 
are the band-aid solution for this government. They think, well, it's, it's we have to perform in some way to show we care somewhat. And that's my concern is that it's a performative gesture. Uh, but what happens is the students are paying again, right? So they are now, you know, giving up another week at least of their learning and stability and structure and all those things that get, they get from school because we want to keep them safe, but we're doing nothing else to keep them safe, right? The community transmission is still high, it's still skyrocketing. And without that piece, that concurrent piece, we're not all chipping in to make sure schools are prioritized. And that is what's problematic is that the spin about the delay is not followed up by the action that we need to get to a place where community spread is low because we know that once Omicron gets into schools, the government has not actually done anything in the past few waves to insulate schools. And that's why Alberta schools are particularly vulnerable when we enter any of these waves with a new variant, uh, with high transmissibility, higher now with Omicron. So I think it's a partial move, but it's incomplete. And what we want to see is the government go into schools. You've bought time. You've made the students wait. Go in and follow up with your, your narrative that you want to protect students and get ventilation assessments, get HEPA filters. So many solutions are available to us. The government just is still refusing to follow through on a comprehensive approach. Dr. Lee, you started asking one of the questions that we've been seeing reoccurrently in the thread today around what folks at home can be asking their school boards and their governments for to enhance the safety within educational settings. And I think, Gil, this is also a really great, great question for you as well, because I feel like a lot of the protections that workers need will be similar to a lot of the protections that our most tiny humans need in the spaces that they're spending eight to 10 hours a day. So Dr. Lee, you just mentioned ventilation. Um, what are some other things that people can be screaming into the void about, I guess? I think what we need to see is universal policy. So uh, one thing that they actually did not change was masking. Um, they're saying, yeah, we're going to upgrade slightly the mask to medical grade or surgical um, masking, but then K to three is still not, they're still ex exempt. So what's the messaging here? So is masking porn or not? Um, it's contradictory to their own policy. Um, a lot of the data is still missing for schools. Uh, there's still no contact tracing and they've scaled back PCR testing for uh, education staff and students. I'd like to see um, the priority of maintaining safe schools, well, well, making them safe in the first place and maintaining them with data and notification. So if that means redeploying resources um, we know schools are essential and they have to be safe workplaces and they need to be safe learning environments. And when you don't have that, then it's, it's the, the students lose-lose, right? They, they're not able to access supports at school. But then if they go to school, they could get Omicron. So let's try door number three, where this province has never tried, and that's having safe schools with proactive measures. Yeah, and if I may, um, you know, I... The federation that I lead, the Alberta Federation of Labor, represents unions in both the public and private sector, uh, who in turn represent almost 200,000 workers in this province. And uh, our unions actually came together earlier in December to put together a joint statement of what we would like to see from the government to protect 
working Albertans in the face of Omicron. And basically, we did that because uh, the government failed in the in the preceding four uh, waves of COVID to acknowledge that COVID was spreading in workplaces. They literally tied themselves in uh, in intellectual and rhetorical knots, trying to deny that that COVID was was spreading. The most uh, blatant example of that was when. Uh, more than 900 workers at the uh, Cargill meatpacking plant south of Calgary uh, contracted COVID. Uh, three people died, um, but the government claimed that they had contracted the illness not at work, but at home, and they blamed essentially blamed the workers. They said, "Oh, it's because you live in crowded uh, living environments, or that you are carpooling," and uh, and. Perhaps most famously, uh, the agriculture minister who was responsible for meatpacking plants uh, actually called the workers together in a virtual town hall and uh, and said it was safe for them to go back to work literally the day before the company uh, on its own uh, realized that the situation was out of control and uh, closed the plant. So, you know, this is a government that has been lying um, about the transmission of COVID in the previous uh, waves. This new wave is much more serious in terms of transmissibility. So, you know, we, we don't want this, we, we want the failure to stop. You know, the government has failed, been failing workers for four waves and we basically drew a line in the sand and we said uh, collectively that, you know, we want this government uh, to, you know, to, you know, to stop uh, sacrificing workers on the altar of UCP politics because that's what's happening here, right? It's ideology and politics. Um, and so we, uh, you know, on, on December 22nd, actually, so, you know, uh, 10 days ago now, 11 days ago, we actually put together a 12-point plan for keeping workers safe in, in Alberta workplaces. We sent it to the Premier, the, the Health Minister, the, the Labour Minister, and we demanded that they sit down with us and talk about keeping uh, workers safe in the context of Omicron. And we have not heard from them. And so a lot of the things that uh, Dr. Lee, Dr. Vipon, Dr. Gasparovich, Dr. Bisbee have been talking about, uh, like they were in our they were in our twelve point plan. I like I won't pretend that we made this stuff up. We just we listened to experts, which apparently these this government is loath to do, and we put it in our plan. So you know basically we said the first step is that the government needs to acknowledge that COVID is airborne uh, and act accordingly, and because acknowledging that. Uh, that fact, which has been well established by science, is the foundation for uh, mitig uh, actions to mitigate, right? So if you know it's airborne, then you'll look at things like uh, ventilation, um, air filtration, masking. The second thing we said uh, is that uh, they have to acknowledge that it's a workplace hazard. They haven't done that yet. And they're actually, they're actually you know, standards and procedures that we use in terms of workplace health and safety we have we 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 talk about uh like sort of a hierarchy of protections you know so starting with elimination if we can't eliminate it what, what can we do to mitigate it if we can't mitigate it what what other steps can you know there, this is not this is not rocket science we actually have established procedures for dealing with workplace hazards they refuse to look at COVID as a workplace hazard and now they've just made it even more of a hazard with these new isolation rules so you know it, it's not it's not rocket science uh people like you the, the wonderful work that you guys have been doing through protect our province we know what needs to be done and that's the frustrating thing we know what needs to be done this government just finds all sorts of new excuses not to do it and so at, th at this point you know like I, I don't know what like I, I don't know about you but like i'm feeling this 
profound sense of discouragement and powerlessness uh, faced by this government that is wantonly uh, putting people at risk unnecessarily. And this this is this is not a mistake; it's a choice, right? And um, you know, so so we're you know we in the labor movement are thinking of ways that we can you know you know force their hand so we there will be it's not a question of if there will be court action there will be we are going to be taking these guys to court in the new year for negligence causing illness and death that's going to happen um i don't know how that's going to work out but we are probably going to have to think about some kind of workplace actions as well um even just today i mean i, I got i gotta say the dozens of people are saying it's time for a general strike i don't know if that's possible in this context but uh something has to give Right. And uh, because the, we, what we have now is a government that has made it very clear that they will not do the job of government, which is to look after their citizens. And um, anyway, we know what we need to do. It just needs to be done. Just want to throw some quick points on schools. Um, there has been a question in the chat about uh, pediatric admissions. There is evidence that the zero to five range um, is more susceptible. Uh, to this virus than previous viruses. And so we need to keep an eye out for that. I don't know what the current statistics are here in Alberta. I know that in the United States, we're hearing reports of that. And also we saw that in uh, in South Africa and the United Kingdom. So um, that's something to watch for. I want to reinforce the fact that less than 4% of our 5 to 11 year range has had two va vaccines. And remember, it's three vaccines to be protected from this virus, not two. Three, and only four percent of less than four percent have had that. Thirty-four percent have had one dose. Thirty-four percent have had one dose of the COVID vaccine in the five to eleven range. Of the zero to four range, zero people, zero percent have gotten a vaccine because they're not allowed because it's it's it hasn't been studied. So we. Um, yeah, we're, we're basically, they're the most susceptible. They don't vote. They don't have power. It's our job to protect them. And I don't understand why we wouldn't do everything we can. And to be honest with you, one of the things that we need to recognize protecting kids in schools is we need to get community transmission down. And I don't know how we can do that with bars and restaurants and casinos open. The a the, moral indignity to all parents that schools are closing before bars restaurants and casinos are closing. I think it really speaks volumes to the priorities of this government that that's happening. Um, if I could just jump in as well. <laughs> I'm not even a parent and I am um, I'm aghast at how our students are being treated. Um, to echo what Gil said around uh, workers keeping themselves safe, uh, I, I just like it on the record that I fully support their rights to strike. Um, I fully support a worker making the decisions they need to make to keep themselves safe. Um, if you have access to a union, speak to your union and ask them to help you out. If you have access to an employee assistance program, reach out to them and ask them how you can get supports that way. And if you have a family physician and this is something that's keeping you up at night and causing you stress, I hate to put more, more work on family physicians, but, um, you know, chat with them. Um, do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. Uh, I would also like just to say to healthcare workers in particular, um, I know how how heartbreaking this is. And if you need a break, take it. Um, 
it's a hard decision for many of us to step back when we need to, um, but you have been through two years, so step back if you need to. Does anybody else have any other thoughts that they would like to add before we say fuck off to 2021 and hope for a slightly better 2022? I would like to add <clears throat> something to Dr. To what Dr. Vipon said about infecting everybody. Uh, that on top that it's totally immoral, it doesn't solve anything. Like epidemiologically, it doesn't solve anything. We will not get herd immunity from that. Uh, so that will just cause more people being sick. And and what get won't get us immune. So we will have another wave and another wave and another wave. And each time an individual is hit with infection, it's worse, worse for their bodies. So uh, just accepting this massive mass infection uh, is absolutely wrong or pushing mass infection on, pe on people is, is immoral and stupid. It's just stupid. Sorry for this word, but, but I don't understand why people do that to other people. And what we can do in 2022, so WHO said that we have, that the world has all the tools to end the pandemic in 2022. We have all the tools, we have vaccines, we have, have non-pharmaceutical interventions. We know that COVID is airborne and we, we have masks, we have HEPA filters, we have everything to protect ourselves from the spread of airborne virus. As much as we had everything, we have everything to protect ourselves from cholera by filtering water right so we can end it but by this we cannot believe in something that there is an endemic just behind the corner that is gonna to solve it without us doing anything so we have to really push our governments to protect us push our governments to commit to ending the pandemic this year and we are in very wealthy country and our country should lead other countries to ending the pandemic. But we have to do this push. We have to request it from them because they don't do it by themselves. I, I, I lost the hope that somebody there is an adult that will act. So yeah, I wish everybody in 2022 that that will be the last, day, last year of this pandemic. Thank you. Um, you may have heard me say this before, resign Kinney, resign Hinshaw. Um, those aren't just like words of anger. I firmly believe that if you don't have the capacity to think your way through previous waves and learn from previous waves, you will keep making the same mistakes. Um, I see no evidence of learning. I just don't. So I, my, my, my statements stand. Anyone else before we say goodbye for today? So I guess in closing, our final broadcast of 2021, um, I know everybody who's watching has a deeper understanding than a lot of people. I know sometimes it almost kind of feels like we are preaching to a choir. So I guess I have one request. If you find yourself with a little bit of downtime today or tomorrow and are looking for some action, Help us expand the chorus. 
A choir that sings in five-part harmony is so much more dynamic, so much more fluid, and so much more inviting than one that is a monotonous narrative or the monotonous narrative of misinformation and some strange lens of view that our government seems to propagate. I've noticed over the last few days, a number of folks in my circle that aren't necessarily part of my Pop AB crew have reached out and asked me questions about N95s. So even though I know we've been talking about N95s since our very first broadcast, that deepening of understanding within the larger population about transmissibility, about how we can stem Omicron and not create a 2022 that repeats 2021 is beginning to get out into the public conversation again beyond the altos and the sopranos that are currently in our choir. And so if you have time this weekend Share some of the information that you have gained by tuning in, some of the questions that you have asked and some of the answers that you have received with the basses and the baritones and the second sopranos who didn't hear it last month or the month before. We deserve transparency and accountability. We in the pop crew are often given bits of information about conversations that are happening unverifiable, but conversations that are happening in various levels of our government. And there's a huge disconnect between the words that I hear are happening in those rooms where decisions are being made, what information they are being given, and the information that they are choosing to share back with us as a whole population. And that has to stop. We should be entitled to not just the data and the studies that those decisions are based on, but the options that are presented to each person in that room who we have elected to make responsible decisions on our behalf to keep us, our friends, our families, and our communities safe, as opposed to having to listen through a kaleidoscope of jargon that may or may not involve personal responsibility or... I. I'm so not willing to keep accepting these ongoing mistakes, lies, and spin in 2021. So like Dr. Bisbee said, like Gil said, like Dr. Vipon said, write, scream, whatever you need to do to make sure that those who are supposed to represent you are actually representing you because you deserve to know what you are walking into. And so many Albertans haven't joined our choir yet, so they don't know. And oftentimes we only get a portion of the story. On a positive end of 2021, um, Protect Our Province Alberta was able to partner with Alberta Activist Collective over the last few days. Some team members have been working very, very hard to raise $25,000 Canadian to purchase and have delivered 15,000 respirator masks for folks who are structurally marginalized. We know that so many people are excluded from the best health precautions that they could have due to systemic in inequalities. 
And over the last three days, 20,000 of that $25,000 goal has been raised, which is exceptionally exciting. So if you are someone who is not facing extreme or moderate financial barriers and has one more gift that you would like to give during 2021, please visit our website or the Alberta Activist Collective website or Twitter or Facebook or any of those places. Find the link to the GoFundMe campaign and give $5. If we had a bunch of $5 donations in the next few hours, we would make it to that $25,000 before we rang in 2022. And whether you spend your New Year's dressed to the nines or in your most cozy house coat, I did both. Um, I decided today, remember, we really do care. Most of the communities that we are a part of are filled with citizens who want to keep everybody safe. But many of our communities are missing the complete picture. So again, I beg, I plead, help us expand the chorus. And until next year, friends, stay safe, Alberta. Remember, COVID-19 is airborne. You deserve transparency. Wear the best mask you have access to. Vaccines are still saving lives. And if you have access to a rapid test, they aren't the gold standard, but catching some of our illness is better than catching none. Use them. And if you do test positive, document it. Our webpage has a documentation template designed by one of our docs. Because if you need to seek COVID or post-COVID supports, lack of access to PCR testing may limit your access to those supports. So you can find a reporting form that you can print off, fill out, send to your doctor, screenshot, save, don't send it to us, keep your information to yourself under the Friends of Pop AB section on our website. And because gold is one of my favorite colors, and today so many of the citizens of our globe lost an icon, a moment of silence as we say goodbye for a great spark of joy in our universe who decided not to say hello to 2022, but has left us with a legacy of gifts, laughter, and love the iconic Betty White, you will be missed.